With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is U.S. national editor and columnist at the Financial Times, Ed Luce, to talk about the resignation of British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Freedom House President Michael Abramowitz about President Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write in a politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the link to this week's sponsor, Chili Sleep, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. You know, the January 6th committee held its seventh hearing, and they connected more dots of Donald Trump's disregard for the rule of law to steal an election and the end inside a violent mob. You know, as horrifying as the events were on January 6th, James, the criminal case against Trump is much broader. It is as that legendary prosecutor and former war room guest Andrew Wiseman outlined a hub-and-spoke conspiracy. Trump hatched a plot that first sought to bully state election officials to find votes to change the outcome, filed a slew of frivolous suits alleging a fraud that didn't exist, moved to create fake electors, tried to deep-six top Justice Department officials and install a crony who could then peddle and act on the big lie and then intimidate Vice President Pence to violate his oath of office in certifying the election. It was only after all of that failed that he incited the violent mob to disrupt congressional certification of a Biden victory. This, by any definition, is a conspiracy led by one man, Donald J. Trump. Well... A couple of things to keep in mind is uh, we're not through yet, not by a long shot. And everything that they are doing, and remember, Bliss Cheney is a graduate of the University of Chicago Law School. Uh, Jamie Raskin is a skilled attorney, graduate of the Harvard Law School. And I don't know how many lawyers they have. Everything they're doing is to make a case that Merrick Garland cannot ignore. And the the criminality that is being exposed, and it's much more is going to be exposed. However strong you think this case is right now, you just wait till the middle of August. And, you know, Garland, and, and you see Wiseman, you know, putting heat on, the amount of heat on the Justice Department to do this is going to be enormous, but the real heat is going to come in the quality of the evidence that's going to be presented. And I, I, I think that I, I think that's really what they're really about is just to make it impossible to turn away from. I think back again to the Watergate analogies, and there were people or people say, well, Nixon was finally done in by the smoking gun. No, that's not right. The smoking gun came out on August 5th of that year. Uh, over a week ahead of time, the House Committee on Judiciary had voted by a bipartisan vote to impeach Nixon because the evidence was there. I am, uh, I, I'm, 
I agree there's going to be more evidence, but boy, that case is there already. There is there was a conspiracy. It was clear cut, uh, and uh, uh, it just I don't see how Garland's going to be able to avoid it. You, give them another four weeks. I don't. Well, I give them that. They don't need well, it. I know, but I'll, but I'll give it to them. We're not through yet, yeah. and and they are doing everything they they possibly can to build a criminal case against Trump. That's their mission. Well, yeah, it is, and I hope they continue to build it. They build it. Uh, and the more, the more, the better, the better the case. Uh, James, you know, look, to change the subject, the polls look a little bit better for the Democrats, but there's still a lot of carping uh, inside the party. Well, is there a lot of carping? And take a second, because this is something that that is irritating. You have people on the Democratic side or the left side of the equation that it's become fashionable to attack Biden. And he didn't say enough about the the, the, the Dobbs decision. He doesn't do enough here. He doesn't do enough there. It, it, it's if the Dobbs decision is Joe Biden's fault. It, it It's idiotic. It, it, it's moral vanity. It's political posturing. There's some group... Uh, called somethingaction.org out of Sacramento that's running a, a Biden don't run in 2024. That's a stupid question to have right now. You got one thing on your mind and one thing only. That's doing as well as you can in the election in November of 2022. And, you know, the Democrats, by the way, we're not doing as bad as people might expect. Uh, Ron Brownstein wrote about it today. Uh, right. Every discussion I have is this decoupling, that that the law of political physics would, would dictate that we should be doing a lot worse than we are. And by the way, if we had in, some enthusiastic uh, uh, Democratic support, it increased Democratic support for the, the party and for Biden, we could do actually pretty good. Because we're doing pretty well now, and we're losing way more Democrats than we should be losing. And I hear too many people who are otherwise intelligent go and with this claptrap of it's Biden's fault. But Biden doesn't not Biden's fault at all. It's the, if you want to put anybody at fault in this, of course, the Republicans, but they're hopeless. The only, what, the only hope you have is Democrats shut the fuck up about talking bad about other Democrats and get behind it and, and get some vote enthusiasm out there, and you might be able to do a lot better than people think. We're kind of breaking even now with, with pretty crappy internal numbers on the Democratic side. And it, it, it just, you know, it, it, every piece of, of trivia, whining, complaining, you know, chasing people down in restaurants and stuff. It, it, you know, we, we're, we're going to do fine in Northwest Washington. We're going to do fine in, on the east side of Greenwich Village in Manhattan. We're going to do fine Beacon Hill in Boston, all right? Shut up. Just shut up. That's what I think. Well, and uh, I, I, I would put it a different way, but I would agree. I, all the babble about why Biden oh. doesn't do more on abortion, why he doesn't do more on guns, why he doesn't do more on Trump, why he doesn't do more on summer proms. It's just senseless. Uh, for, uh, 
the very little he can do, and he is not FDR or JFK. But these crybabies better realize that if they get a bad result on November the 8th, if they think it's bad now, next year is going to be hell. So uh, you're right. They ought to focus on one thing, the vote on November 8th. It, it's all about themselves. All right? They think this makes them look good to their friends. That's all it's about. And, and it, it's, it, it's really, it, it's kind of disappointing to watch the Democrats around the country uh, just whine and, and, and fall apart when they be coming together and try to save this goddamn country as opposed to drown it in a bunch of trivial complaints. Circle one date, November the 8th. That's the one that matters for all that of you out there. All that matters. Nothing okay. else matters. Hey, James, Freedom House, started by Eleanor Roosevelt in 1941, is the foremost champion of human rights and political freedoms around the globe. We're joined by its president, Michael Abramowitz. Michael, thank you for being with us. As you know, President Biden this weekend will meet with Arab leaders in Saudi Arabia, most prominently Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who the CIA says orchestrated the murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. You write in a column this Wednesday that Saudi Arabia remains one of the worst places in the world for political freedom and engages in transnational repression, targeting and killing critics beyond their borders. You really think it's a pretty bad place. It's definitely one of the least free countries in the world, Al. As, as you indicated, we rate every country in the world for the state of political freedom. And uh, Saudi Arabia every year is one of the worst with respect to press freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, all the different things that we measure. So it's a pretty bad place. And what's really interesting and concerning about the last six years, ever since MBS came to power, is that they're increasingly trying to repress uh, their critics beyond their borders witness the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. And they went after the former number two intelligence guy in Canada also, who had Correct. fled to Canada. Yeah. Correct. And it, I, we really think that the president, you know, I personally think it was a mistake for the president to go meet with MBS without really getting greater assurances of protection of human rights. But that, but that ship has sailed. And now that the president is going, we really hope that he'll use the visit to really speak directly to the crown prince and also speak in public uh, about how human rights and democracy fit into U.S. foreign policy. Michael, the Saudi defenders say, OK, yeah, they've got a long way to go, but let's think of where they were, that MBS has ushered in uh, real progress, women in the workforce, they can drive, uh, have other rights, movie theaters and entertainment, curtailing the religious uh, police. Uh, isn't that you know, real progress? You know, first of all, I'm not an expert on Saudi Arabia. And, you know, people do report that there have been some progress in some of those areas. And people that I respect say that, the, that in certain respects, the kingdom uh, is doing better in that regard. But I would just say that the human rights that we care about, that I think you care about, freedom of press, freedom of religion, these are not rights that should be granted by the king. These are rights that we are inherently born with. And so we really think that uh, Saudi Arabia can do much, much more to really uh, respect those kinds of rights. And I think it's in their long-term interest, because if you don't respect those rights, it's going to create greater trouble for them in the long term. 
Michael, you understand real politic. Your dad was a distinguished diplomat. You wrote about foreign policy for the Washington Post. You know, the, uh, the so-called real estate. Look, uh, you know, it's a, it's a difficult world. There are a lot of bad guys out there. We have to deal with bad characters as well as good characters. Absolutely, Al. And listen, we're, <laughs> I didn't fall off the turnip truck. Uh, you know, I've, I've covered presidents before for the Washington Post, and I was a reporter there. This is always the uh, the kind of balancing act that every president must make, whether it's President Carter, President Reagan, President Clinton. Uh, you are always balancing uh, interests like oil, like economics, like trade with, with some of these other things. I would just say that in general, my feeling is that we need to push up the issue of values in this equation. I think with 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 respect with the exception of Ukraine, where I think the president is doing a very good job in trying to marshal uh, support for trying to repel Russia from Ukraine. I think that we're seeing sort of a more ordinary foreign policy in terms of balancing these interests than we might have expected from the president's rhetoric uh, during the campaign and also during his inaugural address. James Carville. Oh, thank you. Uh, so, Michael, I, I'm obviously hardly a foreign policy expert, and every time somebody says something about Saudi Arabia doing something, my basic assumption is 80% of what they do is governed by the hatred of Iran. Absolutely. They are, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that's kind of driven them in the in the direction of Israel over the last 10 years. They both share a common enemy. So the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Right. All right. So when the, we had the, the murder of Khashoggi in the Istanbul. It was great outrage in the United States. The Post was particularly outraged because Khashoggi was a, a wrote for them. But we'll never forget. And it was all across. And people said, "This is just outrageous. You you chopping a guy up in a foreign country." A, a, and of course, Saudi Arabia made a very smart bet that our attention span is just not that long. And if we run against moral indignation or high gas prices, well, we know where we're going to go. And it seems to me that Putin is making the same bet in Ukraine. Yeah, they'll him and hard, they'll be all excited and shooting guns in the air and giving speeches and stuff, and they just get, they'll, they'll just lose their attention span. Is, is it a valid criticism of modern America and I'm not, politicians, journalists, the public institutions that we, 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 we don't want to be in for the long haul on anything. We've got no patience and no attention span. Well, I, I hate to say I agree with you, but I really do agree with you, James. Uh, very much so. You know, I was in Germany in, in April, uh, and it was an interesting time to be there because, you know, Germany, as you know, has been very, uh, had really gotten entangled with, with Putin too much with respect to energy. And there was a real reevaluation of that and people saying, we're going to have a new foreign policy. We're going to put more, more money into defense. Uh, and now, you know, you wonder, well, is Germany really going to stick in this for the long term? Same thing for the United States. I definitely think that Putin is betting that people in Europe and people in the United States are going to lose interest in Ukraine. By the way, it's already off the front pages because of, you know, the January 6th, because of Saudi Arabia. So I think it's very important for the President Biden to really explain to the American people that this is a long-term proposition. It's gonna take years. I mean, democracy, we think, has been in decline for at least 15 years at Freedom House. 
It's not going to take a year or two to, to beat that. It's going to take, it's a generational issue. And we have to have the patience and understand that, yes, we're going to deal with people like, uh, so, like countries like Saudi Arabia, China. We have to. Uh, there's no way we can avoid it. But that we have to kind of be patient and, and really understand that our values are also part of the equation. Well, I agree. And to the people that listen to this podcast, stay engaged, bring pressure. Don't forget about what's happening in Ukraine. And he's betting that you're going to lose your attention span, just like we lost it in Saudi Arabia. All right. It, you, it, it, it's, it's unbelievable how we can turn on a dime. But such is the world we live in. Well, Michael, I can't thank you enough. Al, you want to close out for us? Uh, we really appreciate you being on here. Yeah, Michael, we really do. It's a very important message. And listen, all you out there that don't know about Freedom House, uh, look it up because the work they do and have done now for over 80 years is bipartisan. Uh, it really is an extraordinary organization. Michael, picking up on what you said, uh, just with a final question, um, you really fear, I think, that the trend around the globe is less pro-democracy and more authoritarian? There's no question about that, Al. First of all, let me just say thank you, both of you. I, I admire you both very much. I have for many years. It's an honor to be on your show. But yes, we have seen at Freedom House a steady decline in democratic practice around the world and a rise in authoritarianism. And by the way, I do not exclude our own country to this. Freedom House has clearly documented an erosion in democratic practice in our own country that started well before President Trump and is continuing after President Trump. We see countries like China and Russia getting stronger internationally. You've seen traditional democracies like Poland and Hungary India uh, uh, eroding. And so this is a real problem, and it's a national security problem. As you saw from Russia you, uh, and China in particular, American business interests have huge interests in these, in these countries, and their investments are at stake uh, uh, in, in these countries because of these authoritarian practices. So we think this is a long-term problem, and we are very concerned about what is happening around the world. Well, uh, Michael Abramowitz, uh, you are certainly uh, uh, in the in the forefront of, of, of trying to stem this. And I want to, again, thank you for all you're doing and urge all of our listeners that if you aren't involved with, if you don't know about Freedom House, uh, look it up because uh, they're, they're, they're doing it. I want to make this about religion, but they're doing the Lord's work. Thank you very, very much, Michael Abramowitz. Thank you, Al. Thank you, James. Be well. Bye-bye. Hey, James, we have back one of our favorite guests and actually one of our first guests, Ed Luce, the chief U.S. commentator for the Financial Times and an expert on all things U.K. politics as well as American politics. Nobody better discuss what's happening with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. He joins us from England. Thank you, Ed. Uh, Boris Johnson and Donald Trump, both congenital liars, both phony populists, both failed leaders. You've covered them both. How do you contrast the two? Um, you know, uh, um, Trump is a, a darker character. Um, Boris, uh, I think, um, you know, has the, the perhaps some deceptive um, sort of silver lining of being humorous and entertaining um, and being able to make people laugh. Um, but ultimately, you know, if you look at their political effect, they're both political nihilists who have an extraordinary damage to the democracies that they've led and clearly care nothing for that legacy. They're, they're sort of 
epic um, for the ages um, selfishness of Boris Johnson at every level of his life, his personal level um, and his political effect. Um, his ability to lie like, you know, um, bronchial patients cough, um, um, I think very Trumpian. Um, and it extends from, as I say, the his children to have as many abortions as he paid for to um, to the most spectacular. What will the benefits of Brexit be? I mean, big lies and small lies uh, have characterized him. And um, ultimately, that's what brought him down. And let's let's pick up on the Brexit because that was his launching pad. He still hails it as a big success. It really has been pretty much of a disaster, hasn't it? It has. I mean, if you remember back to the 2016 campaign, the referendum, um, those who are campaigning to remain in uh, the European Union um, argued that uh, if Britain exited, there would be an immediate economic collapse. And that was branded Project Fear. And of course, they were they were exaggerating. Um, they were scaremongering to some degree um, uh, that this would happen immediately. Um, it, it didn't happen immediately, and therefore Project Fear and the, the whole Remain case was seen as discredited uh, amongst the British population. But as time goes on, we see the slow motion um, realization of Project Fear's um, forecast. Um, Britain's gone from being the second fastest growing member of the G7 to by far the slowest growing. It's got the highest inflation rate. It's got the fastest falling investment rate. And it's got, you know, by, by a, a very serious um, lead, the most bleak economic forecasts for, for the sort of five-year period ahead of any of the major economies. So it has been, it has been a, a disaster, a self-inflicted catastrophe for Britain's economic prospects. And, of course, its place in the world more broadly um, has been and will continue to be, I believe, severely diminished. So Project Fear was right, but it, it, it was it was too melodramatic in its time scale. And let's talk about what happens next, assuming Boris can't somehow find some diabolical way to stay on. But if you look at the Conservative Party, which you know well, your family has been MPs, uh, you wrote this week that the quality of Tory leadership, that it was full of half-wits, ignoramuses, school debate also rans, and ideological robots. What else do you like about him, Ed? <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the sort of plus side of this field of eight contenders to replace Boris Johnson is uh, that none of them are pathological liars. Um, you know, uh, uh, this is a very unusual leadership moment election for the Conservative Party. They're, they've got a habit, it's a very ruthless party, of turning out prime ministers in office, most famously Margaret Thatcher, but also Theresa May, also Winston Churchill, also Harold Macmillan. I mean, this, this, this is a, a, a deep tradition to be quite brutal, um, or Darwinian, as Boris Johnson called it. Um, uh, but what makes this different from all the other um, defenestrations of conservative prime ministers is it is not over policy it's not over principles uh, it's over character and integrity or, or rather lack of character and blatant dishonesty um 
And so uh, what each of the eight um, contenders vying to replace Johnson, uh, to some degree or another, trying to signal is that they're more honest characters. Not very difficult. It's an extremely low bar. But integrity is sort of the role in this leadership contest. Um, as far as who might win, who will chancellor of the Shaker, whose resignation on July the 5th prompted um, the fall of Boris Johnson, his resignation um, later that week. Um, and Rishi Sunak is probably the most sort of traditional pinstripe suit City of London conservative figure. And then two others, Penny Mordant, who almost nobody had heard of, and I believe only 5% of the public even know her name, um, who's the trade minister, um, and Liz Truss, the foreign secretary, both of whom are wrapping themselves in a sort of Thatcherite mantle, a cartoonized version of Thatcherism. Uh, and it looks like it's going to it's going to be it's going to be one of those three. James Carville. So, so Ed, uh, help us with a timeline. So the, obviously the Tories have a, a majority of parliament. Uh, Boris Johnson resigned. How long do you estimate it will take them to pick? And Boris Johnson is currently serving as prime minister of the United Kingdom. Am I correct? So, so how, what, yes, how that dangerous, a dangerous combination of Boris John, the words Boris Johnson and caretaker. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not, it's not a role. I think that you know one would naturally entrust to somebody like Boris Johnson, but he's probably got another six or seven weeks before his uh, successor is chosen. And it's a very weird election process. The right. the Conservative members of Parliament whom there are about, I don't know, 360 or so, they ch whittled that. Um, and then the final two are submitted to the mass nationwide Conservative Party membership, which tends to be far more to the right, far older. Um, and there's about 100,000 of those. I mean, they used to, in the old days, used to be a couple of million. But uh, as you know, party politics has declined um, as a pastime. Um, and so there's about 100,000 very Brexity, um, uh, sort of older, whiter Conservative Party members will choose between the final two that the members of Parliament hand over to them. And I think that's, I think the date for that is September the 5th for the Tory party membership. The final two will be selected next week. So this is like elected, more complicated than electing a pope. <laughs> right. So how long? I don't know. Whether you, have you ever seen, uh, James, have you ever seen Love Island? It's a very trashy Kardashian-esque reality TV show in Britain. Uh, this is kind of the political version of Love Island. <laughs> and, and so how long, uh, I call it a mandate for lack of a better word, but but how long can the Tories stay in power before they'll be forced to call another election? I, I don't think they're required to call another election until the end of 2024. Right. Because um, uh, so, there are fixed parliamentary five-year terms now. Um, and Boris Johnson led the party to victory in December 2019. So it would be the end of 2024, but um, uh, it, you know they can they can call a poll sooner uh, if they if they um, have a majority vote in parliament, um, 
right now, Labour are in the lead, really. They've got a smaller lead than you would expect, given the economic um, gloom that sort of enveloped this island, and quite rightly enveloped this island, given its prospects. The sense of the 1970s, I mean, infrastructure, all the Blair years' investments in public infrastructure are really now beginning to sort of fade out. It's getting creaky again. Prices, uh, you know, are rising at double-digit rates again. Um, services are just not good. We've got, I think, what you'd you'd somebody put as Scandinavian tax rate tax rates, Mediterranean uh, public services. That's not a good combination. Uh, and the deficits and the trade picture. There's a 1970s feel to this. So Labour should have a much larger lead, but they do have a clear lead. Right. Okay, talk to the current state of the Labour Party, whatever time I think of the Labour Party, I think of the longest suicide note in history. (laughs) And then Jeremy Corbyn, right now, talk a little bit about Labour's leadership and where it is as as an opposition party. Um, Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, you know, who replaced Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> Corbyn, you know, I think penned arguably a longer suicide note than Michael Foote did <laughs> in so 1983. Too. Corbyn's 2019 campaign, you know, really was a gift to Boris Johnson. You know, Boris Johnson has that Napoleonic general's quality of being lucky. And he was very lucky that Corbyn was his, uh, you know, opposite number in the 29 general election. And that helped him get this thumping victory. Um, uh, Keir Starmer has kind of sanitized some, uh, some believe, you know, rather brutally, uh, rather undemocratically, um, moved Labour into sort of a post-Corbyn um, phase, which makes it electable again, uh, which is to sort of uh, sanitized it with sort of anti-Semitic elements that Corbyn tolerated. There were extreme left elements, you know, that are no longer prevailing. Um, and I think Keir Starmer, you know, he's he's safe. He's a pretty dull, he's not a very charismatic leader. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, we've had a lot of entertainment with Boris Johnson um, and entertainment is overrated. Um, and I think if, if, if Keir Starmer were the leader of the Social Democrats in Germany, that would all be fine. They, they, they rate boringness in German politics in a way that, you know, the tabloid British media culture doesn't. So my, my fear is that Keir Starmer has not really impressed himself on British voters' minds um, in the way that a sort of surging opposition party ought to be given these conditions. It's really, in soccer terms, there's a pretty wide open goal. Um, the best thing Keir Starmer had going, Labour had going for it, was Boris Johnson, who's extremely unpopular, who, you know, the joke has worn long since thin with the British electorate. They're, he's got rock bottom ratings. He deserved to be defenestrated by the Conservatives. Um, and now that they're going to get somebody new, they could just rebrand themselves. And that's, that's potentially dangerous for Keir Start for Labour. Robert? Uh, let, me, uh, let me talk to you about some of the implications of the bad situation over there now. Can, I don't know, if if Labour takes over, uh, can Brexit be revisited or has that train permanently left the station? No, it's not going to happen. Um, You know, one of the 
one of the great things that Boris Johnson pulled off was these red wall, um, you know, constituencies, these solid Labour constituencies in the north, these districts in the north and the Midlands, which have been Labour in some cases for two generations, turned conservative in 2019. Um, because he appealed to the Brexit, um, to the, I guess, nationalist, even xenophobic sort of vote and and won them over to the Conservatives. Keir Starr wants to win them back. He has to. Labour has no chance of getting back into power unless it wins back those working class, industrial and post-industrial parts of of England. Um, His slogan is make Brexit work. Um, uh, now, whether that would allow Britain to rejoin the single European market from outside of the European Union, um, not for Norway and to and for Switzerland, other non-EU members, with, uh, without having a say over you know the rules of that market, um, that would certainly be good for Britain economically. Even a custom rejoined customs union would be good for Britain economically. But I'm not sure whether the political traffic will bear it. I think it'll take a generation for Britain to overcome this conniption um, over Europe and to pay the price for it and to feel the price for it and to understand why it's paying this price. Because right now there's a lot of murkiness. You can blame the pandemic. You can blame the in the in Ukraine. You can, you, you it's not, it's not necessarily obvious to people that Britain's economic stagnation can be laid at the door of Brexit. But objectively speaking, it can. But in politics, that hasn't yet been driven home. And that's, I guess, that that limits Keir Starmer's room for And he's fairly boring. As I say, he's not a big entrepreneurial risk. He's not a risk taker. So uh, we're talking uh, in the show about us losing our will in Ukraine. And, and Britain was very upfront, very forward, uh, as was the United States. Uh, do you see, and it's obvious that Putin's gamble is, is the West will just lose patience with this and will be diverted by other things. Do you see that strategy working in Britain for Putin? Um, I, you know, Britain's, I think, third on the list. The United States has given the most in terms right. of weapons and financial support to right. Zelensky. Poland comes second and Britain comes right. third, considerably ahead of France, Germany, Italy, Spain, the other big European countries, considerably ahead. Um, and, you know, the one place that will lament, is lamenting Boris Johnson's departure, is Ukraine. There are even like bridges and streets in Ukraine being named after him, uh, which <laughs> is a sort of quality um, to it. But the the leader... The person who didn't join the Conservative leadership contest, Ben Wallace, Britain's defence secretary, many people expected to and would probably be a front had he joined it. Um, clear, and I think the other candidates, the actual candidate, also made it clear that there will be British continuity on Ukraine, um, that it will continue to be um, uh, sending equipment, training a lot of Ukrainians. Um, in warfare and snipers and all that kind of stuff that Britain's been doing and and spending a fair, a fair amount of money for it. One of the outside candidates for the leadership, Tom Tutenhart, who's chairman of the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, uh, and he's sort of, 
he 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 stands for the liberal one nation um, anti Brexit wing of the party. He's pledged to raise defence spending to three percent of GDP. Right now, it's just above two percent, <clears throat> and that's not unpopular. That do, that doesn't go down badly, in spite of the budgetary, uh, and in, in spite of the austerity that people are feeling. The Ukraine issue remains a, a fairly broad consensus, not just within the Conservative Party, but with the Labour Party too. So, I don't I don't expect that Putin's strategy of winning the game of patience will see its first signs of success in Britain. I think um, I think it's Germany and France we should be looking at. Right. Yeah, Ed, let me ask you another um, implication, perhaps. Let's talk about, uh, about Scottish independence. It lost eight years ago, like 55-45, but uh, Scotland voted, I think, 62-38 to remain in Brexit. There's a lot of unrest and unhappiness with what's happening in London. Scottish First Minister uh, Nicola Sturgeon has called for a Another referendum uh, on on independence in October of next year. If that goes ahead, it might well be a different outcome this time. It could be. Um, it's a gamble on her part too, because the opinion polls haven't shifted drastically. Really, perhaps surprisingly, yeah. since the 2014 uh, referendum, and and then it was sort of close to being 55-45 uh, to stay in Britain. Um, and the numbers aren't. I mean, they 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 jump around a bit. But the numbers haven't clearly changed since then. So she's risking a Quebec-style um, situation where if you try twice, it's pretty hard to ask a third time and say, look, I, you know, are you listening carefully? Um, can you give us the correct answer this time? Twice is a, a gamble um, because a third time might not... The second, next October, as you point out, that she's requested of next year, uh, that requires the permission of the government in London, of the British government. It's not It's not something that can automatically be triggered. And I, I'd be interested to see if any Conservative Prime Minister, whoever succeeds Boris Johnson, would think that's worth, that's worth the gap, would see any upside to agreeing that. It's not like the Conservative Party has many seats it could lose in Scotland. It's only got two or three members of Parliament from Scotland. Um, and the rest are Labour and, and Scottish yeah. nationalist. Ed, um, you, you also are one of the keenest observers of American politics, uh, as well as British politics. About a month ago, you wrote a column that was that was skeptical of the January 6th committee, what it might achieve. After these seven hearings, what's your assessment today? I'm really impressed. Um, you know, I, I think... Um, if if there are two sort of goals of this committee, one is to change public opinion and the other is to galvanise the Department of Justice. My scepticism on public opinion was probably justified. Um, I think there's been a, a little bit of a shift, but I don't think it's a game-changing shift. But in terms of the sort of uh, um, amassed body of evidence and the compelling way in which it's been um, submitted and the reams and reams um, that... Are, will be available to the Department of Justice that we haven't seen. We've just seen sort of very slickly presented highlights. And the fact that every single witness almost has been Republican, and not just that, has worked for Donald Trump. And in some cases, you know, our direct offspring of Donald Trump um, is, is a, 
belies some of my skepticism. I've been pretty impressed. Um, Profile encouraged to Liz Cheney. Um, but also, uh, uh, you know, the, the fact that these five 10-minute rules and the grandstanding all were suspended, it's been very, very well handled, as well as you could expect. Yeah, it sure has. James? Yeah, well, no, I, I, I totally agree about your thing on, on, on January 6th. And they have one mission in mind, and that's to force the Justice Department to act. And I can assure you the coming hearings are going to put considerable more heat on the Justice Department. So you are a keen observer of, of U.S. politics. And, you know, the argument is it would be too draconian a step to indict uh, an ex-president. It, it, it could backfire. It would further polarize the already polarized nation. And the other argument is, is a great nation cannot let massive criminal acts go without some some kind of uh, accountability. Where do you sort of stand on that divide? Uh, I mean, I would hate to be Merrick Garland. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, we, we're all, of those of us, you know, without legal and particularly constitutional legal training right. can be quite glib, you know, about how easy it is to, to persuade a grand jury um, uh, as opposed to, you know, um, a, a cable news jury. Um, of uh, very serious charges that would be arraigned against Donald Trump. Um, I would tend to go with your latter option, though, that a great democracy, a republic such as this, cannot allow an attempted push, putsch, uh, a blatantly attempted coup like this to go unpunished. Um, and that I very much hope Merrick Garland is... is you know, being very skilled at concealing the good work that his staff and his prosecutors um, are doing right now, that we are unaware of, that I'm unaware of. James, we um, have to let our distinguished and, guest, uh, who, who I'm, Ed, I know you have, have an appointment. I can't thank you enough for being with us. Uh, you have enlightened us on American as well as British politics. I'll tell you one good thing uh, amidst all this problem. I think there are two first-class ambassadors, Dame Karen Pierce in Washington and Jane Hartley going to the court of St. James. So maybe they can knock some sense in these, uh, in these aging men. I would agree with you 100%. Um, uh, and it's always a delight, um, Alan James, to, to be with you. And um, thank you for having me on. Thank you. Good. And safe travels, Ed. Now for the outrage of the week. James, I am contemptuous of Senator Josh Hawley, a man of considerable intellectual capacity who has chosen instead to become a right-wing demagogue. Former Senator Jack Danforth said embracing him was the worst mistake of his political life. But I sided with the Missouri Republican this week when Berkeley law professor Kiara Bridges accused him of being, quote, transphobic for saying that women can get pregnant. Instead, the professor said it should be about, quote, people with a capacity for pregnancy, end quote. You know, we're having a critical debate in America about abortion over the next three and a half months after the Supreme Court took away, a Republican Supreme Court, took away a 49-year-old protection. It's about the rights of women to have a choice. It's not about the rights of, quote, people with a capacity for pregnancy to have an abortion, end quote.
Look, why did the Democrats even have this hearing? Bring I don't know. I don't know. It, 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 it's, it's just another example of just asinity and shooting yourself in the foot. So my outrage is, I'd say a headline that Joe Biden apologizes to Hispanic community or something. And I said to myself, what the fuck could this be? That, that might be the nicest, most inoffensive, inclusive first lady that we've ever had. And it turns out she was giving a speech in in San Antonio and, you know, we're talking about different aspects of, of, of Hispanic culture and how much she, she liked breakfast tacos in San Antonio. And some operation called the Association of Hispanic Journalists said that, that they're reducing Hispanics to a stereotype. And i like, what are you talking about? So I, I, I want to read a text exchange I had with my dear friend and guy's going to be on the national ticket here in the next, I don't know, 20, 30 years, Congressman Ruben Gallego of Arizona. I said, if you ate beignets in NOLA, I really do not think you're trying to reduce me to a stereotype. Let's have breakfast tacos when I come out your way. We'll do to the death on which tastes better. His, he texts me back, is there real diversity in beignets? Well, you got cane sugar and powdered sugar. <laughs> I mean, this, it's like, stuff. I go to New York and, and, and I say, I, I want locks and bagels. Am I reducing Jewish people to a stereotype? If you go to South Carolina and order a bowl of grits, are you reducing Southern people to a stereotype? I mean, the, the, the capacity of people to come up with bullshit to get to, to, to moral posture, get themselves in the news, is it, 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 it's really, at one point, it's humorous. And at another point, the two things we put on today, it, 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 over a period of time, it has a corroding effect on the image of Democrats because it looks so silly. Now for the questions from our very, very smart listeners. Uh, we got a lot of good ones this week. I wish we could get to all of them. Uh, picking up, James, what we've been talking about, Daniel in Ontario, Canada says, we all talk about the woke issue like it's a temporary blip that will go away and things will get back to how they were pre-2015. But what if they don't? The woke generation were just college kids five years ago with little authority. Now they're in the workforce, at media publications, and within other businesses, foundations spreading their views and influence. Good question, James. So I can make a, 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 a observation here. I, I'll use it in this context, but I'm, I'm no longer going to use the word woke because woke has a very noble beginning. It was first uh, by... Lead Belly, Lead Better, great blues jazz musician of the 20s and 30s when he was talking about the need for black people to be woke about their surroundings. Of course, the word, you know, was appropriated by the faculty lounge in the cultural left to mean things that Lead Belly, Lead Belly would never know about. And I want to thank this guy who writes on CNN. I don't know him personally, but I read his stuff. It's w. Canoe Bell. I might be pronouncing his name wrong. But I, I had no idea that that the term woke had such a glorious origin. So I, I, I understand. I know it's come to mean something else. But it, it's as opposed to something serious that Lead Belly 
was trying to articulate it's just become something for a bunch of goofy academics. So I I, I, I don't think it's a terrible four-letter word, but I'm, I'm not going to use it anymore. I'll, I'll just call it the cultural or the identity left and leave it at that. They don't, they don't deserve the term woke. They're too stupid. Next, Barbara in Fayetteville, Arkansas, said, assuming we lose, we being Democrats, lose in November and the Republicans come in with no policies yet an agenda to destroy Biden, how do we continue? Barbara, let me just tell you this. If that scenario plays out and Republicans take the House and the Senate, it's going to be cataclysmic. It's going to be, uh, you know, any judge that Biden dominates, McConnell will block. Uh, there will be nothing that can be done. There will be investigations, phony investigations. Remember Benghazi? It's going to make Benghazi uh, look like the real deal. Jim Jordan, chairman of the Judiciary Committee. So, Barbara, I can't offer you any rosy scenario in 2023 if Republicans take control of both houses of Congress. It's worse than that. It's can't be. worse than that. <laughs> All right, listen to my logic. All right. If you look at the Senate map in 2022, it is considerably better than the Senate map in 2024. All right. So if if we lose Senate, so we lose the House, they'll keep it for more. Obviously, they'll be able to keep it for more than than one term. Very likely they will. I shouldn't say obviously. Very likely. And if, if, if we're down to 48 Democratic senators, we could easily be down to 43 in 2024. And, and it's easy enough to see Republicans, you know, following this, elect the president. Guess what's going to happen? They're going to be a national law that's going to ban abortion. In the case of rape, incest, anything you want. They're going to pass. If you think the Supreme Court is bad now, ha, just wait. And that's this idiotic. And that, that's going to be the result. That's what's going to happen. They are going to tap dance on your head. All right. And the only way is we can build a cushion, a head of steam, you know, by, by electing some more Democratic senses to offset, which is, you know, not inevitable, but likely loss of Democratic seats in 2024. So uh, people, the, the situation is so much worse than you think. It's so much worse than you think. And I just hope that every person that listens to this program is very militant about Democrats who attack other Democrats between now and Election Day. Okay, Barbara, you got your marching orders. Uh, All right, this is a good one. Tara in Massachusetts. She's writing as an active listener and a former student of Professor Carville at Tulane. She said she graduated in 16. Something stuck because I am now working in the Massachusetts State Senate as a legislative director. Tara asked a good question. She said, I've found so much of politics isn't the policy wins, but how the elected and uh, candidates communicate with folks at home. They aren't political consultants. So what does a Democratic establishment in particular, why they feel so weak in talking to people like real people? And can they learn from the squad? It was. I'm so proud. I mean, it's just now every time I see a former student that actually does something in politics and at least flatters me enough to say that being in my class had something to do with it is that that you know that makes me feel better than you know if they were a partner at a you know silk stock in New York law firm. Amen. It, you know, it, it you 
it, and it's 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 a really good question, and and you find this much more in legislators than you do in governors. And when you're in that culture, you get into that speak, and, and the, the 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 way that the legislature speaks and the way the public speaks is something entirely different. And so you know better. I think I, I like to think that you've been taught better, and you should gently, you know, your staffer. Point out when you, when they're using language that that people don't use, and that the best way to communicate is through simple language that the people speak among themselves. Because you're not showing what what is so so well, I talked about it so much earlier in this show and continue to talk about it is this moral vanity, this sense that we have a language that we've developed that we talk to each other in. And if voters are virtuous, moral people, they will learn the language we speak, which is idiotic. So I am so glad that you're there. Uh, I, I'm so pleased. I hope that you have a, a really good career. And just keep in urging people to speak English, just plain, simple English. So thanks a lot for the letter you made an old man's day. You were taught well and you learned well, Tara. Thank you. Uh, Paula in Green Valley, Arizona, says, considering the absolute anti-democratic and corrupt practices of the other party, would it hurt for us to be a little less purist, uh, a little on board with what will work to truly help people, even though we can't claim to be as saintly as we would like to be pursued? Uh, like to be perceived. Paula, let me tell you two things which I think you, you, you understand. Politics doesn't have very many people who are saintly, and politics is not pure. Neither is life. Neither is anything. You want to achieve, we want to keep your principles, you want to keep your values, and you want to achieve what is achievable. Uh, if you're a progressive, you want to elect the most progressive person who is electable. And uh, let me give you one example. If it were left up to me, uh, I would favor a mandatory buyback of guns. There's 20 million in this country, it's an outrage. That's a stupid position politically. So instead, what Democrats like you, Paula, ought to do and encourage your uh, Democrats running for office, you ought to talk about things that are practical and achievable. Uh, mandatory um, um, waiting periods and uh, banning assault weapons. So, Paul, I think you're right. Uh, you're not going to have saintly or pure results, but you can have good results that help a lot of people. So, so where's Paula from? You said She's from Green Valley, Arizona. Green Valley. Paula, when I come to Arizona, come see me. I want to kiss you. You're so exactly right. She may right. not want that, James. Well, she may not. No, I, <laughs> I doubt it, but at any rate, I, sometimes you have to use poetic license to make a point. <laughs> I, I can't begin to tell you that the first thing that you're when you're a Democrat is you're in a coalition. Right? We're not a cult. We're not an ideological cult. That, that we have ideological cultists that are in part of our coalition, and they're always going to feel uncomfortable in a coalition because they can't win without coalition. And, you know, you, that's something you have to understand. If, you, if, if you're not, uh, Ryan Grimm talked about it, and go back and read it. Right. If you're in a coalition and you're not comfortable, you're really not in a coalition. And, you know, Abraham Lincoln understood that to the nth degree. God did Franklin Roosevelt understand he built an entire coalition. Uh, I, I know President Clinton and President Obama understood that. If some of these overeducated people don't understand what a coalition takes 
and what responsibilities and obligations that you have of being part of a coalition, particularly a coalition that is in opposition to what I consider almost pure evil. And and the, 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 this sort of quest for, for some utopian perfection is is asininity on steroids. So I'll, I'll, I'll blow you a kiss, okay? But that's the great, great, I'm so glad we got that question. These questions today are right in our wheelhouse here. And, and, and Paula, we're going to make sure when uh, James Carville comes to Arizona that we get you two together because it was a yeah, great yeah. question. A, a safe five feet away. <laughs> <laughs> OB in Naples, Florida. This is a question, James, you may know about this. OB directs all of my donations to to. Galeo, G-A-L-E-O. I don't know about it, but you may. It's a project that focuses on Latino involvement. Uh, from his perspective or her perspective, he said this is an area where the $1 donation will have a maximum value at the ballot box. Uh, do you agree? I, I, I agree with somebody. The, the thing that worries me is that it used to be we could just blindly target uh, Latinos. All right, They are particularly the males are drifting away from us, so it's got to be involvement, it's got to be persuasion to to explain what's what's exactly at stake here. But yes, I think that, uh, you know, I think that that's good. And people that sit down and think about where they're sending their money, uh, it, 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 it's very important. And uh, uh, we speak about this a lot, Al, but I, my own personal view is that if you, a donor, you know, not a hundred thousand dollar donor but you know if you if let's just say you have a thousand dollars that you you want to donate to political candidates do your research and i still say the best donation you can give is directly to the candidate but for, for complicated reasons they have absolute control on how that money is spent and where it goes you you, you get better ad rates than you do with super pats he's just I, I don't know if anybody really disagrees with me your first instinct to donate should be to a candidate, alternatively to a state party that is in the middle of big races, uh, Wisconsin, uh, North Carolina, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, the, these, 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 these are kind of places that, that Michigan that come to mind. So uh, that, that's my advice on, on contributions. Yeah, no, I, I would I would just second that, James. I think you're right. And I don't know about that organization, but it, you know, it, it may well be quite good. Alex right, in, 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 Newton, <clears throat> in Newton, Pennsylvania, asked, do you th think Biden would be doing himself a favor and the party as well to announce now that he will not be running for re-election? Not now, but six months from now, Alex, the answer is yes. Yeah, I, you know, I... It, of course, the Times story, and then there's another Yahoo poll that says only 18 percent, but it, it confirms what, 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 what the Times poll said. And obviously, he's very, very uh, testy about it, but the, it, that's a discussion to have after, 20, after November 2022, right? Just, there's, no, there's no percentage in it, and... You know, we 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 just got to plow through this November the eighth, twenty twenty two, and then we'll have plenty of time to talk about what we should do in twenty twenty four. Yep, I agree. But the story's not going to go away. I mean, it's a legitimate story. In the times, you can tell that you know they got their teeth in this, and 
my experience with them is when they get their teeth in something, they, they generally keep biting. James, our final question is from Tony in Waiuku, New Zealand, which is near Auckland, he says. I, I tell you, we got a we got a nice little audience in uh, New Zealand. We get a number we of sure questions do. from them. I got I've never been to New Zealand and boy do I want to go. I hear no, it's I'm going. I, I want to go see Peter Jackson. I, I would go with, just to sit at his feet. He's the guy that directed They Shall Not Grow Old, which is one of the three greatest movies ever yeah, I've right, seen in my life. Anyway. Tony asks, how might Liz Cheney be holding up working in a hostile work environment with her Republican colleagues? What does her post-House uh, representative's career look like? Would she be able to have a second career after being defeated in the House or choose to move on to something else? I, I think that Liz Cheney is, is actually doing exactly what she wants to be doing, I don't. I, I know there's not a political calculation in this because it doesn't make any sense. And she is dedicated to one proposition, and that is helping to put together evidence that the Department of Justice cannot turn away from. And she is totally outraged by what Trump has done. The only calculation she has is that he'd be held accountable for his criminality. And uh, I think she'll have a, you know, very seldom in life does somebody have a really big stage to walk on and have, have people observe her and admire her. And there's a lot of things I worry about. Liz Cheney's future is not one of them. Whatever she does, she's, she's going to have a, a, a real future. And she is just a person with a mission who is 100% focused. And that's what I really think. Agree. It's about character, and she's displayed. She she right. is going to be totally vindicated by history. May may not take long, as a matter of fact. Uh, she got an awful tough primary uh, next month in Wyoming. But win or, win or lose, Liz Cheney is going to be a really prominent figure in American politics for some time to come. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicom. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the link to our sponsor, Chili Sleep, in our show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.